Welcome back, Onion Heads. After taking a bit of a New Year's break, I'm going to review the first three building blocks that await us after birth. I'm building on the work of Eric Erickson and his psychosocial stages of development. Each stage contains a pair of opposites that we must master to some degree if we are going to build our own workable life. I'll be touching on the challenges we face with regard to the resolution of each stage of development. Further, I'll highlight how each stage's resolution contributes or detracts from the development of our spirituality. So here we go. The first stage is trust versus mistrust. When you were born, who was waiting for you? We used to think that when we were born, we were a tabla rasa, a blank slate, waiting for our parents to write our personality. No longer. Infant studies have shown that we come out of the womb and into the world searching for relationship. Therefore, the critical question, when you were born, who was waiting for you? Obviously, your mother was waiting for you. From the moment of birth, we face the relational challenge of resolving the issue of trust versus mistrust. Donald Winnicott writes, The potential space between baby and mother, between child and family, between individual and society or the world, depends on experience that leads to trust. It can be looked upon as sacred to the individual, in that it is here that the individual experiences creative living. Despite the Mother's Day cards extolling the loving nature and admirable characteristics of mother, there was a distinct mother awaiting each of us. There are depressed mothers, overly anxious mothers, single mothers, narcissistic mothers, garden variety neurotic mothers, abused and abusive mothers, angry mothers, mentally ill mothers, as well as largely loving, kind, and caring mothers. The phrase, the good enough mother, was coined by the aforementioned British pediatrician and psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott. The good enough mother creates her relationship with her baby with attunement to her baby's needs. She learns the difference between cries of hunger, a wet diaper, colic, cutting teeth, and so on. She gazes lovingly in her baby's eyes while breast or bottle feeding. The mother is the baby's world, experienced as part of himself or herself. Here's an example of how trust or mistrust works itself out in the life of the baby. 
Currently, mothers and fathers are urged to adopt the cry it out method at nighttime. The theory is that the baby, beginning at months four to six, learns to self-soothe by crying until he or she falls asleep through exhaustion. Or we imagine that the baby in the throes of terror will somehow learn to self-soothe. It might take 10 minutes, 30 minutes, even an hour or more, and parents are to white-knuckle it as the baby wails and screams. This approach is out of touch with the need for parents to be attuned to the needs of the child. It's just a modern update to the old advice that to pick up a crying baby is only going to spoil the baby. Instead, what we consider at this time is that babies experience something like dying if left on their own to cry unceasingly. An infant is not capable of self-soothing, and crying it out does not create a child capable of self-soothing. An infant learns to self-soothe by internalizing the calm, soothing presence of the mother or father, and it takes time for the baby to experience the consistent soothing by the parent. Simply put, one has to be soothed in order to learn to self-soothe, just as we need to be loved in order to learn to love. The cry-it-out method of nighttime care goes a long way to creating adults who cannot soothe themselves. Excellent fodder for the pharmaceutical companies. Winnicott theorized that the good-enough mother starts with what I call exquisite attunement to her baby. She does not have to be perfect in any way, just good enough. Being trustworthy wins out over being untrustworthy. Initially, the good-enough mother is entirely devoted to the baby and quickly sees to his or her every need. She sacrifices her own sleep and her own needs to fulfill the needs of her infant. As time goes by, the mother allows the infant to experience small amounts of frustration. She is empathic and caring, but does not immediately rush to the baby's every cry. At first, the time limit to this frustration must be very short. She may allow the baby to cry for a few minutes before her nighttime feeding, but only for a few minutes. She is not perfect, but she is good enough in that the child only feels a slight amount of frustration. The fascinating thing about Winnicott's notion of the good enough mother is that he connects the mothering process to the child's cognitive development and the development of a healthy concept of ex external reality. At first, the baby experiences the mother as part of himself. The baby is in love with his mother and experiences her not as a separate person, but as a part of himself or herself. 
As time goes by, the moments apart from the mother's total empathic attunement to her baby's needs sparks the beginning of the baby's mental activity and sense of an external world. And the external world is supportive of his or her needs. Back in the 1930s and 40s, orphanages were overrun with infants. Being chronically short-staffed, a noticeable number of these infants died. Not only was there not a good enough mother, but the world was not experienced as trustworthy enough for the baby to hang around. Psychologically, the mother is the initial and primary person on whom we rely on for mirroring. Ernest Wolfe summarizes our mirroring needs as our need to feel affirmed, confirmed, recognized, to feeling accepted and appreciated, especially when we're able to show ourselves. These needs continue throughout our lifetime. So, when you were born, who was there besides your mother? In a sense, we get a second chance if our mother has been less than good enough, when we experience a good enough father. Just like mothers, there's a wide variety of fathers. Strong fathers, supportive fathers, protective fathers, abandoning fathers, absent fathers, abusive fathers, addicted or alcoholic fathers, wise fathers, guiding fathers, checked out fathers. The father provides for our idealizing needs. Again, Wolf summarizes these as a need to experience ourselves as being part of an admired and respected father, needing the opportunity to be accepted by and merge with a stable, calm, non-anxious, powerful, wise, protective father in our times of fear and anxiety. These needs also continue throughout our lifetime. When I was one year old, my father left to join the Navy in the Korean War. He was stationed in Long Beach, California, so there came a time when my mother and I were to fly to join him. While getting on the plane, my maternal grandmother kept my guh, my flannel blanket that was my security. They say that I screamed on the plane, all the way to California. Now, my maternal grandmother was a tough old German who I imagine did not approve of my guh. In retrospect, I wonder if she purposely kept my guh to break me of the habit. Our language is interesting. Breaking the baby of the need for a blanket, a stuffed toy, a thumb. Interesting language. Nevertheless, here was a cl clear experience of mistrust, both on the part of my grandmother and my father, who disappeared for a year while serving on a minesweeper. 
And what about a good enough God image? Here I break with the vast majority of Christians because, like the experience of mother and father, I focus not on belief in God, but on the experience of God. Just like we do not believe in a good enough mother, but experience a good enough mother, I take the same approach with the divine. Ultimately, belief gets us nowhere. But trust in our own experience of God grounds us in something which cannot be taken away. As a pastor, I suggest that belief will not be adequate as we cross that wide river to Jordan as we lay dying. But experience, that will carry us all the way there. I use the term God image because none of us know God. We all have an image of God. One of the reasons Carl Jung appeals to me is his emphasis on the experience of God. Let me quote him. Nobody assumes that God is an immediate experience. In the Christian church, they talk so much of the necessity of believing in God that one really becomes doubtful whether God can be an experience. You see, if we have the experience, we don't need to believe. So the Greek word pistis, which means confidence, loyalty, is not at all what we understand by believing. It means the loyalty to the fact of the experience. All the belief in the world doesn't make it. Without an experience of God, one has really no right to make the effort to believe. It leads nowhere. He goes on. Belief is no adequate substitute for inner experience, and where this is absent, even a strong faith which came miraculously as a gift of grace may depart equally miraculously. People call faith a true religious experience, but they do not stop to consider that actually it is a secondary phenomenon arising from the fact that something happened to us in the first place, which instilled pistis into us, that is, trust and loyalty. The man who taught me preaching theorized that as the men and women who had first experienced Jesus began to die, the initial communities of faith began to write down their experiences, and this is how we came to have the Gospels. And then we have Paul who experiences Christ on the road to Damascus. But then these first-hand experience people died out and the emphasis on the church moving forward became on faith as belief rather than faith as experience. These first experiences of mother and then father create the building block of trust. And out of these good enough parental experiences comes the virtue of hope. Hope that the world will respond to us in positive ways. Hope that we will make it through difficult experiences. Hope in our relationships. Hope 
hope that there is a life beyond this one. These good enough parental experiences yield a healthy dynamic of being both able to give and take in relationship. This is critical as we all have had the experience of people who are not able to receive but only give, and others who cannot give but only take. This matrix of trust and mistrust impacts our life in countless ways as we grow and mature. And of course, there is also enough disruption, disappointment, discouragement in our experiences of the primary caretakers that we also have experiences that create mistrust. If trust outweighs mistrust in significant ways, then we can tolerate the mistrustful experiences. So I'm not saying it is black or white, trust or mistrust. There is a healthy mistrust. That's why we have such words as naive, gullible, and susceptible. We use these words when we discover to our detriment that we have trusted the wrong person. There are people who take the stance of trusting every person until they're proven wrong. I don't find this helpful. Better to take relationships slowly until one experiences over time whether a person is trustworthy or not, or discover that the person can be trusted in some ways but not others. It is also not safe in dating situations to dump your whole life story on the first date. It creates pseudo-intimacy, which momentarily might feel nice, but in the long run doesn't work in building a trustworthy relationship. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, if the parents are not trustworthy, we learn to take our needs to other people who cannot fulfill them. Or we take the stance of only trusting ourselves, refusing help or support from others. Mistrusting everyone is a bit paranoid. The world really is not out to get you, although you may experience, as we all do, the unfairness of life more than we would like. This business of trust and mistrust is tricky business, something we sort out over a lifetime. One of the priceless contributions of Heinz Kohut and self-psychology is the view that our sense of self can find healing ongoing under the right circumstances. One of the priceless contributions of Heinz Kohut and self-psychology is the view that our sense of self can find ongoing healing under the right circumstances in the right relationships. For example, when I was about four, my paternal grandmother married Walter Jewett, a railroad engineer. She brought him to our home, and after introducing him, I walked over, climbed in his lap, and stuck my thumb in my mouth. Intuitively, I knew this man was safe, and it turned out to be true. 
He was a gentle, kind giant whose framed photo sits on the shelf above me. And so it has been for me throughout life. Male mentors and colleagues who filled that father wound with their admiration, their guidance, their support, and their care. Pastor Bernhard, Arnie Carlson, Bob Schultz, Joe Major, Boyd Cook, and my analyst, Tom Kapasinskis. Female mentors and colleagues who have provided psychological needs would be Emily Haight, Susie Pangel, Jeanette Roberts. There have been older women who surrounded me with love. Grandma Hazel, my aunts, who were not really aunts, Ruby and Ada. In their eyes, I could do no wrong. One of my wonderful memories is sitting around the table playing euchre at Cedar Lake in a cramped camper surrounded by these women, listening to the sloshing water nestling into the other RVs and campers, all lit at night by Christmas lights. And then there is my primary trustworthy person, my wife, Deb, who provides me with more than a good enough experience as a partner. If the parents are not good enough, my experience is that there are other fathers and mothers waiting to be discovered. Don't keep going back to the well that has already proven itself to be dry and empty. That's all I got. Hopefully it's been good enough. The song that follows The Bottle by Gil Scott Heron speaks of the destruction rendered by those who are trapped in the bottle, a breeding ground for mistrust for those around the alcoholic. Next time we'll look at the second building block for life, autonomy versus shame and doubt. That black boy over there running scared His old man's in a bottle He done quit his nine to five to drink full time Now he's living in a bottle See that white boy over there running scared
Eagles in 